Hello, and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. Showcasing the science, stories and solutions behind climate change with Phoebe Scott, Alex Miller, Lottie Flashness and Guy Wilkinson. Hello and welcome to another episode of IB Green Minds. I'm Lottie, your host of this episode, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Yuri Rogel, Director of Research at the Grantham Institute and Reader in Climate Science and Policy at Imperial College London. Yuri was a coordinating lead author on mitigation pathways for the IPCC's special report on 1.5 degrees of global warming, and more recently was a lead author for the IPCC's sixth assessment report. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're going to discuss the sixth assessment report in a moment, but before we do, could you talk a little about your research? What are the key questions you seek to answer? So in my research, I basically try to understand what our knowledge about or what we know about the climate means for policy. Uh, And that I do by researching whether global climate agreement meet the goals that we have set ourselves, 1.5 or 2. I research that by developing concepts uh, such as carbon budgets to link physical science to policy, or by looking at transformation pathways of how our society can stay within certain limits that we have set ourselves in terms of global warming. And how did you get into academia? Was it something you always wanted to do? Well, I I started as a student, but after that, I actually, I worked for a while in development corporation and there, uh, and this was in Africa, and there was really intrigued by the interaction between development and the environment and climate change and how climate change affects development was, was a key topic there. And so after spending three years in Africa, I actually moved back to academia to do research and then ended up doing a PhD and well, since then, I, I continue that direction. Reminds me of uh, some of your lectures on the CCMF programme, touched on development and other aspects of sustainability. Do you think that those experiences still affect your work now? Very much. Very much also to keep the perspective in mind that ultimately we are not just trying to solve one little problem or one isolated problem. We're not just trying to save the climate. We are not just trying to eliminate poverty. They're, they're all connected. And we would like to achieve them together. And and that is something to keep in mind because it will define the solutions that we consider and uh, and the choices that we make. Now let's turn to the sixth assessment report, which I'm sure you've had many interviews about. Um, It was published a couple of months ago and it summarised our current understanding of the science of climate change. What was the main message of the report? Well, to make it very short, climate change is here and we are responsible for it and we know enough about what we need to do to halt it. Uh, And that really, or or to stop it from getting worse. And I think that is kind of really the the main message. And under all those very broad statements, there are many thousands of pages of, uh, of more detailed technical information. But the most important insights there is indeed that we can now stronger than ever attribute what we see today to our human activities, And also that we now have a much better view about the fact that some of the changes that we are causing today will be with us forever. They're basically irreversible and some of them will be really hard to stop. Even if we stop warming, some changes will continue to get worse over time. For example, sea level rise, the melting of ice caps and so forth. So this is really, this is kind of this interplay of different time horizons that really comes to the fore this time. 
The Paris Agreement set out a framework to limit global warming to well below two degrees, but ideally 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. However, the sixth assessment report stated that it is more likely than not that we will breach the 1.5 degree threshold, even if global emissions start to decrease this decade on more sustainable pathways. What impact do you think this finding has had or will have? Well, I can't speculate on what it will have. But one thing is clear to see global action on climate change is absolutely very urgent. And basically, we have left it slightly too late to have a high confidence that we will be able to avoid 1.5. However, uh, the IPCC also, in addition to saying that under each of those scenarios, 1.5 will be reached at some point, there is a massive difference between those scenarios or those futures where we reduce our emissions and where we indeed end up around 1.5 and global warming continues to hover around 1.5 compared to those where we don't reduce our emissions and where we reach 1.5, we breach it and we continue to two and two and a half and beyond warming over the course of this century. So whether or not we are just below or just above 1.5 is not really the key point of concern here. The key aspect is whether we, we are, have stabilized our warming and our climate by then, or whether we are still continuing into literally unknown territory. Kind of following on from that, it seems like the emphasis maybe has shifted from 1.5 or 2 to net zero. I don't know if that's just because a lot of companies are releasing net zero reports or targets rather. Um, do you think that's a good thing because that speaks more to the stabilization of global temperatures or do you think it's uh, a bad thing because people focus too much on the net? Yeah, it's, uh, um, it's two sides of the same coin. It started with temperature targets. To limit warming, we need to bring our emissions down and we need to keep emissions within a carbon budget, so we need net zero. Uh, from the policy literature, it then turned out that um, it is much more tractable to set net zero targets. And this is also what you can see now. Um, a company is not going to set a temperature target, but they're very happy to set a net zero target. Um, but ultimately also they need to add up and net zero targets are often quite far in the future. So we also need near-term steps and near-term plans that put a, a country or a company's uh, emission trajectory on a path towards achieving that net zero target. And so it, it's kind of a continuous interplay between the global temperature targets, which is actually what we care about. I mean, we even don't really care about the global temperature. We actually care about the impacts for which the global temperature is a proxy. And then actually the measures that speak to those aspects of our economy that we actually influence and that are the emissions. When people talk about net zero, they often talk about carbon offsets um, or carbon removals to reach that net zero, um, but they're quite a controversial topic in themselves. So given your knowledge and expertise, I was wondering what your opinion is on carbon offsets, whether you see them as a distraction or part of the solution. Yeah, so there are two broad categories of offsets or, or credits. Uh, one, one of them are offsets or credits that are given for avoided emissions, and the other type of offsets or credits are given for actually removed carbon. So for activities that actually took CO2 from the atmosphere and store it either in the land, in products, or in a geological formation. And there is an important distinction between those two. And unfortunately, the term offsets 
doesn't make a clear distinction between those two. So in that sense, uh, as long as there is no credible definition and rules for offsets that ensure the environmental integrity of the entire market, offsets cannot be fully trusted ultimately. And we also know that the amount of carbon dioxide removal that is potentially globally available is limited. So that means every strategy to halt climate change involves deep reductions in our CO2 emissions, as well as removals to compensate for the last residual emissions that we can't fully eliminate. And if we, if we do not put enough emphasis on actually reducing our emissions, then the removal potential that we will have to deploy uh, will be infeasible. We won't be, it w- just won't be available and thus it won't happen. On a similar vein, I've been doing some reading on biofuels lately and reading about how there's only a certain finite amount of land or uh, like bio crops we could grow in a sustainable way. So it's, yeah, it's not a silver bullet. Another interesting question, I think, is about kind of related to carbon offsets is about carbon flows. Carbon flows between land and the atmosphere seem to be getting more attention, particularly as people are wanting to buy reforestation offsets, for example, but also partly because land use change, land use and forestry represent about a quarter of the emissions reductions pledged in nationally determined contributions. Are these flows of carbon being accurately accounted for? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. The short answer there is that I think and I truly believe, I think, that countries are doing their best to account accurately for them. But I also think that the methods we have are not very accurate. So that means that ultimately, I, I don't think we have a really good grasp on the, the actual flows that are going from the land to the, to the atmosphere or from, from the atmosphere to the land. Uh, and there are also differences in how... Um, how countries estimate those flows and how they are described in the studies that develop global pathways that often are used as benchmarks for setting targets. And these differences mean that countries are often overestimating the uptake of carbon in their land compared to the way it is, it is defined in those other studies. So uh, there, there are a lot of technical intricacies that, uh, that need to be taken into account. At the same time, a sustainable land management is absolutely essential uh, as part of the solution to, this, to these challenges. And it is not only important for, for climate change, but also for, uh, for, for biodiversity conservation. And, and in addition to that, or, or better said, there are actually also important risks with uh, relying too much on land use or nature-based solutions. Um, I think nature-based solutions can really help increase the resilience of ecosystems and of land carbon stocks. But we also know that one of the reasons why we are considering deep mitigation action is because we are concerned about the potential disturbing effects of climate change on our ecosystems. And, and therefore relying that these ecosystems are thriving and taking up lots of carbon in the future to save us or, or to allow us to continue to emit uh, fossil CO2 somewhere else is probably not a very robust approach or a very precautionary approach to solving this problem. Do you think that better characterizing the carbon flows is a matter of more scientific research into that area or more advanced technology to monitor it? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a question of observations and a question of technology to be able to measure it. The key challenge is that in a, in a model, to start one step before that, what we actually want to measure is the flow of carbon that goes from the atmosphere to the land that is caused by human activities. That is the result of our activities, of our management on that land. Now, in a model, that is really easy because you run the model once without any human management or land management. And then you run it a second time with land management. The difference gives you a very simple estimate of the carbon that was taken or released because of human activities. In reality, we don't have that. We can just, with observations, we can measure very well the accumulation or the loss of carbon in a certain, on a certain plot of land. But how much of that is because of the management? How much of that is attributed to changes in the climate, how much is, of that is attributed to the CO2 fertilization effect uh, or because of the, the, the higher CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere. To disentangle that is actually uh, almost impossible. That's very interesting. I wanted to ask you more of a policy question now, which is to do with carbon dioxide removal. Um, so carbon dioxide removal by direct air capture or by energy with carbon capture and storage is rising up the agenda. There are both vociferous critics and proponents. Um, do you think that governments should be engaging with the public on these issues to garner their support? Or do you think this conversation would backfire and disincentivize emissions reduction by the individual or by governments themselves doing more harm than good? Well, to answer your first question, yes, I think the government should engage with the public, uh, but not just on this topic, but the government should engage with the public on, on many of these key decisions that need to be taken and that basically describe a massive societal transformation over the next decade. And in the UK, we have the example of a, of a citizens' assembly, which was uh, asked for by parliament, not by government, but which was this kind of forum where, where people came together to discuss and made suggestions and recommendations on, on difficult things involving changes in behavior and so on. So yes, I think the government should be engaging with the public on these issues. I, I very much I very well see the different criticisms of BEX. BEX is one of those one of those solutions, one of those options where the main term doesn't cover the variety of ways in which it can be done. And that means you can do BEX at scales and at um, and, and and in a manner that is really harmful, that is harmful for biodiversity, that is harmful even for the ultimate carbon flow that is harmful for, harmful for, for local populations, for their food securities, for their income. But you can also uh, do it in ways, probably at slightly smaller scale, but that, for example, provide farmers with an additional source of income that is not so dependent on food market price fluctuations. And Adaptives are being set that can add and that can complement measures that in behavioral change, reducing emissions and uh, reducing energy demand. So I don't like to vilify just one option for, uh, because it can be deployed in, in very bad and harmful ways. I find it interesting, but also completely understandable that a lot of people feel a natural affinity to a solution characterised as natural, like planting trees, even if that is actually quite artificial, but are quite hesitant about things like direct air capture, which would be termed more, I don't know, technical solutions. Do you think that's, if you were 
let's say, a policymaker, do you think you'd take that as a, a cue to engage more and try to persuade the public of the benefits of the technical solutions? Or do you think it means that, I don't know, we should stick with tree planting and things like that? Yeah, I think it is really not an either or question. And, and and tree planting can be really harmful for ecosystems if you put the wrong trees in the wrong place. And and again, there the experience of these different uh, climate assemblies ha- have taught us that if the general public is actually engaged in a conversation with experts and with evidence and with peers of all walks of life and, and cross-sectional across society, they can really see the, the difficulties and the challenges and the trade-offs that have to be made. And they can also see that it's not one silver bullet. It's not just planting more forests that will solve this issue. And, and that will really also allow them and with them, then hopefully also the government, uh, to make decisions about the trade-offs or about the relative importance that is put on one option compared to the other. One, one important aspect that I think we need to keep in mind is that uh, even if we would like to pursue one option, uh, it is never sure whether that option will be successful or not. For some, we have more confidence that it will work because we have, I mean, we have planted trees in the past. And if we, are, um, if we follow best practices, we can put them in places where they might grow. But there, as I mentioned before, a changing climate might change, um, it might change how they perform. The same with technologies. We know how technologies scale up, how they can be brought to market and all that and, and all these kind of things. At the same time, we also know that many technologies have failed in the past, of which the companies that developed them were absolutely convinced that they would be the next big thing. And, and that will also happen now. We will, have, we will have good surprises, we will have bad surprises, and that's why we can't put all our eggs in, in one basket. And looking forward now to COP26, which is happening very soon, what are the main commitments or signs of progress that you would hope to see from the summit? Yeah, COP26 or any of those climate summits are basically the summit or or kind of the peak of multilateral climate policy. So what I would like to see from this summit, knowing that the solution to this climate problem will only be a global one, will only be one where there will be international collaboration. So what I would like to see is not, it's not so much in the details, it's, it's, it's more in, in, in a general feeling that countries go away from that summit with an increased trust, with an increased uh, sense of international collaboration. Of course, under that grant feeling or kind of momentum, there are also some very technical things that need to be resolved. The market rules under the Paris Agreement, the, the famous uh, discussions of Article 6, need to be resolved and nailed down. The climate finance that was promised in Paris needs to be delivered, needs to be renewed. It's clear how a new commitment to climate finance from developed to developing countries helps build trust and uh, international collaboration. And finally, we need to have increased and more ambitious NDCs. And also that is ultimately a sign that countries believe that we're working towards a global goal where everybody is moving in the same direction. So that one overarching idea that uh, we need we need kind of a good momentum of international collaboration on climate change is really underpinned by quite discrete advances that we need to see. And finally, if, if listeners take away one thing from this episode of IB Green Minds, what would you want it to be? Well, we know enough. Let's get on with it. 
put very succinctly thank you very much Yuri for coming on the podcast it's been lovely to chat to you thank you very much for having me